Hi, I'm Tad Robinson, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So tell me, what's the situation like in Indianapolis right now? Well, um, I live actually in a small college town, which is about 50 miles southwest of Indianapolis. So I'm kind of not, you know, I'm not totally a Naptown guy, but that is where a lot of my work is typically taking place when in, in former times. Right. Uh, and the scene there, you know, like all over, people are, it's, it's a waiting game at this point, and people are, you know, many people are making projections about what's going to happen. But right now, everything has slowed down to a crawl. People are at home. People are being really safe. Um, in this little college town that I was saying I live in, Greencastle, Indiana, um, of course, the university is, is all, you know, all the students have left. It's all being done online. Um, people are, you know, we're just staying close to home. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of things. As it's springtime here, you know, you would never know that this, horrible event is unfolding because here it's it's very uh pastoral and it's you know the spring and the flowers and right. i'm doing a lot of things outdoors and just kind of taking care of things that with the house that sometimes get overlooked when in in busy times um <laughs> but in terms of the 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 scene you know what's happening in in the city there where i do a lot of work um People, you know, are just waiting for signs that, uh, you know, that things might get back to a, some kind of normal. But that normal, of course, as everyone knows, we, is, is an unknown at this point. I, I think that musicians operate, you know, for blues musicians, we're either doing festivals that are far away and we're we're on the way to a festival doing small clubs on the way or we're operating in kind of the backwater of a very small part of the hospitality industry which is clubs saloons bar restaurants uh, patios that some venue has where they have music and that part of the industry is uh, you know it'll be interesting to see when and how that can open back up because um, that's where a lot of musicians live and work, you know, in mm -hmm. those smaller venues, not, not festivals every day, but, yeah. you know, mom and pop restaurants uh, that, that have music on a few nights of the week. And uh, that, you know, that's the big mystery um, for all of us. Well, that's for sure. Let me go back in time. Tell me how you first got into music. Well, when I was a kid, I grew up in New York City, and uh, this was the 1960s, and uh, this this was the um, a time period where I always think of it as the time period in pop music, and American pop music, of the great voices, because it just coincided, you know, being... A kid of the 60s, the, the voices on the radio were 
some of the greatest in history. You know, people from, you know, Marvin Gaye, Ray Charles, um, Smokey Robinson, The Beatles, you know, all these incredible um, voices. And, you know, of course, that becomes the soundtrack of your of your childhood. So for me, growing up in that environment, there was never any question for me that I was going to be a singer. And a lot of those great singers were the ones that, you know, gave me an idea of, of what, what it was like to carve out your own trademark sound. I mean, how early did you know that? It was really, you know, pretty, pretty early. Um, I was in, I would say in my, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, that I was already thinking in terms of a sing. you know, I was thinking in terms of a singer, how a singer thinks, how a, yeah, how a singer approaches a, a song, because it never dawned on me that I would want to copy someone else. I would always hear a song and, and I would, I would think of how I would, you know, not interpret because I was a little kid, but how I would sing the phrasing and how, you know, I heard it differently in my head. So, you know, it wasn't that I was so great at it, but it just that it was a thing that I thought I would be very comfortable doing. And my brother had all the 45s, you know, he had the, the 45s listening to the British Invasion. And then, like I say, Motown and Otis Redding and all, all those, you know, the great music of that era. And so I would just, um, you know, I'd, I'd listen to all the records that he would play and um, so it, it led me that way. But it wasn't until I got a harmonica. The harmonica was kind of, for me, the key to the blues world. Right. You know, I, I always was interested in uh, singing, and I was always interested in the pop music of that era. Just being a kid, I guess everybody was. But um, later on, it wasn't until high school that I really got turned on to the harmonica. I had had harmonicas as a kid, but it was listening, you know, at a, at a certain point I became kind of a sleuth and I was looking for anything that had harmonica as part of the music. So it led me to the blues world. It led me to James Cotton. It led me to John Mayall. It, it led me to you know, obscure players like Will Shade and then Big Walter Horton. So it was really, I was fascinated with music, but the harmonica was kind of the entryway or the doorway to blues literature and all the things and all the great, the great blues music. Was there other types of music before you discovered the blues with your <sighs> harmonica playing? Not really, no. Um, I mean, even, I mean, like I say, I was in bands when I was a little kid. In fifth grade, I was in a rock band, and we were doing things like The Stones and covers of, uh, you know, Beatles covers and stuff like that. We played Ticket to Ride, and we played uh, Painted Black, and, you know, I, and I was the lead singer. But at that point, I wasn't playing harmonica. I was just really focused on sing, singing as a little kid. Right. But so... Um, but, you know, everybody that picks up a harmonica, you start playing the little folky tunes um, yeah. that, that you can pick out um, easily. Like every, almost everybody goes, plays in the, what we call first position where you're playing 
on a C harp in the key of C and you're playing something like Oh Susanna or Home on the Range because at that point you're just getting familiar with where the notes are and the melodies that you can pick out. Right. Um, but then when, you, when you're messing around with the harmonica, all of a sudden, you know, you stumble on bending notes and then the light bulb goes off. It's like, wow, what did I, what did I just do? You know? So did you just stumble on that? Like, is oh, that something? Yeah, absolutely. You know, nobody said the way you bend a note is you <laughs> lower your jaw and, you know, do something with your tongue. It wasn't really like that. It's like you're messing with the harmonica as a little kid and all of a sudden you, you can, you hear it and you're, you're, you're slurring and you're bending notes. So that, that whole thing led me into the world of trying to discover the great harmonica players. Um, right. it, was, it was kind of like I say, that was the doorway. And that opened up a whole world because all of a sudden, and this was, this was later when I was in uh, high school or you know, kind of college age, that I you know, got turned on to all those uh, people. I, I met a, a particular person in, uh, when I was at school in New York City in college and uh, he turned me on to uh, James Cotton, the vanguard um, uh, Best of the Chicago Blues album, which was a compilation that had J.B. Hutto, it had Junior Wells, right. it had uh, Buddy Guy, and it had um, James Cotton. Well, they called him Jimmy Cotton on that record, if I remember. <laughs> and he did uh, Blues Keep On Falling, and he did Love Me or Leave Me. And those performances were so stunning that, you know, it just made you sit down and just scratch your head and say, how is he doing that? I'm talking about James Cotton. How yeah, is yeah. he doing that on the harmonica, you know? And so that was a, that was a crucial um, uh, situation, you know, hearing, sitting in your, in your living room, listening on your record player, and you heard this. And it really set me back, and I said, "Wow, I have to, I have to get organized and figure out this harmonica thing." Okay, how easy is it to figure that out, though? Like, how is it easy to hear something from James Cotton go and get blown away and say, "I want to learn that"? Um, <laughs> I, you know, other than the fact that it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard in the world, you know, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> that. That alone kind of said to me, "Oh, I want to be able to do that." And of course, you know, you can, you can search your life over you're never going to sound like james cotton on on a marine band harmonica i mean that, right. you know but but it, but it was it sent chills down my spine and it said it, it sent me on the search you know and then i was waiting tables uh as a young you know teenager in new york and i was across the restaurant that i was working at was across the street from uh, a uh, tower records and I would just get my tip money and go immediately <laughs> over there. And what I did was I was going to the blues section and I was rifling through anything that had the great harp players, you know. And that's where I, you know, I think every musician, every harmonica player goes through that period where there is an obsessive pursuit of something. Right. And uh, so that's when I, you know, I got all my big Walter records and all my, Little Walter and Sonny Boy Williamson and uh, James Cotton and this led to, you know, people finding out kind of the more obscure players. But yeah, at that point, you just kind of you learn the uh, 
the rope, so to speak. And it's all, you know, from listening to the records. There was no shortcuts back then. There was no YouTube. You yeah. couldn't go on YouTube and have someone explain it to you. Um, but it's also kind of an instrument that you can't really watch somebody and figure it out either, right? Like It's yeah, not like yes, watching true. a guitar player. That's so true. As a matter of fact, Howard Levy, uh, the great, great harmonica player, mm -hmm. makes that point. He says it's the only instrument where you can't see the instrument. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, other than the voice, I guess, you can't really see what's going on in your vocal cords. But, um, yeah, the harmonica has got to just be... You know, some people said they used to slow down their tape machine to figure out how people were doing certain riffs. I never got quite that adept, <laughs> adept at doing that. I don't think I would have known how. But, but uh, yeah, it was just hours and hours of listening to uh, the, great, the great blues. And, you know, I, I was also probably half of my mind was focused on the singing. So I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't so obsessed with harp. I was also listening to the vocalists. Right. So let's talk about the singing, because you're a great singer. Thank uh, you. When you started singing in, when you were young, and you said, well, I, I wouldn't mind doing this. Um, I just wonder, at what, did, at what point did you think, I have a decent voice? Um, I, you know, I think... Maybe you never said that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that singers, you know, I don't know. They, it just became something that... Um, I don't know. I liked performing and I liked, I liked figuring out how to get different timbres, you know, different sounds out of my voice. It happened really early on. But, you know, again, this is the background of this is that you're listening to the radio and you're hearing Wilson Pickett and you're hearing Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. And so there was this, you know, there was the template. There was this is the way you do this. And it was in your face every day, um, being the, the golden era of uh, the great soul singers and everything that was coming out of Motown. I mean, people like David Ruffin singing My Girl. I mean, these were just things that, you know, as a singer, they just, you, you couldn't overlook. And right. it, it just, you know, took you by the throat. So, um, yeah, I don't know when it was that it dawned on me that, that I had had the goods, but it was more like this was something that that was very natural and to me, and I loved doing it. Okay, here's a silly question, but I'm always curious. Okay, when you're learning how to play an instrument like the harmonica, there must be times when you think, "Oh, I'm not good enough," or "I can't do this," or whatever. Sure. Does that happen in singing? Like, do you ever become critical of your singing in the way that you think I'm not good enough? Because oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there are singers that uh, have more, much more range, and and then there are singers who have like um, just total command. And and as soon as you hear them, they, you know, they really intimidate you. So yeah, there's there's a lot of doubt that goes into that. I mean, I think there's more self doubt for a stand up singer like me who doesn't also play an instrument, like who doesn't accompany himself. Right. So, you know, um, because it all hinges on that and you have to prove yourself out every time, like every new gig is a proving ground. You know, every time you walk into a new establishment, 
you look at the lay of the land, you see the bartender or you see the venue, you know, you see the sound man and you see the, the waiters or waitresses and all these people and they've never heard you. And it seems like you have to prove that even at, you know, at that level, you have to prove to every single person that you're worthy of, you know, carrying on the tradition of the music or whatever it is. So, yeah, there's there's a there's a ton of self-doubt and um, it's almost like a magical thing that happens when people, you know, turn around from what they're doing and go, wow, that that sounds pretty good, you know, because everybody's a singer, you know, everybody can 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 carry a tune. So when you call it, there's a little bit of insanity for a person to say they're a professional singer because, you know, I never really put it in those words, but the idea that somebody's going to say, oh, I've heard you have a band. Like, what do you do? Play guitar? And it's like, no, I'm the singer. So it, that, it is a, it's a strange statement to make um, because, you know, every, everybody does that. You know, everybody can sing. So, so well, you haven't heard me sing. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, it's an activity that is, is usually thought of as something that people do for free. <laughs> you know, and so here we are saying, you know, I, I need to get paid and I'm, you know, I'm a professional. But but, you know, it goes into just being, uh, you know, singers are only as good as their band. You know, I've always been lucky that I've worked with a lot of good, good people and that um, you get recognized as being a guy that, you know, like, like even getting called by someone you know, who says, hey, I'm a piano player and I need a singer tonight to do some standards, you know, to do some like Sinatra or something. And it's, it's a great feeling to be that kind of like that utility player, you know. It's right. like knowing how to play second base, you know. It's like, I, you know, I know how to turn a double play, you know. <laughs> it's being, being a singer who, you know, you have a repertoire, you have a lot of... Uh, a lot of things you can sing, you can do studio work, you can do all these other things, you know, I can do background vocals, you know, that kind of thing. It right. becomes it becomes a trade like anything else. Um, how does the how does your your learning of the harmonica um, influence your singing and vice versa? Does do the two instruments, if we call it that and I know they work hand in hand, and in, 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 certainly in the blues. But does sure, it influence yeah. you in terms of learning either your vocals or learning how to play the harmonica? Well, one thing is, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a waiter at this restaurant. I go immediately over to find these great records, and there's this amazing literature. There's this amazing repertoire of blues standards right. that you know anyone that that wants to show up and say they play blues or blues-related music, there's no shortcut. You have to be familiar with all of that information. So, you know, it's kind of like you have to go back to the source and learn all of, you know, one thing leads to another. You, you hear little Walter and you hear Sonny Boy Williamson, but then you go, wait a minute, those guys learned from someone else. So there is this continual path that leads you back to the history and the formation of the music. And what I always found with the music that I was listening to, with the harmonica and the singing, was 
you know, as you say, they go hand in glove. There was always that call and response aspect of blues music, and it manifested itself a lot with players like Sonny Boy Williamson or Junior Wells, where the vocalist would sing and, and they would blow harp as an accent uh, to, right. you know, to, to what was going on in the vocal. And um, that was the school that I came from. So the harmonica and, you know, it, one thing about it was um, how, how, it, how those two relate is a lot of times um, the singing, uh, you can refine yourself as a blues singer by really concentrating on s simplicity. And the harmonica was an instrument that, you know, the same, mel same melodic information that you were singing would then be found in, you know, heard in what the harmonica was doing. So the two, yeah, so the two function together, but great singers in the blues world can really learn a lot from, from what harmonica players did because some of that, that the melodic stuff, the melodies that are going on are very important, you know. Mm -hmm. And I've even had people, you know, I worked with guitar players who said, you know, you could probably play this little melody on the harmonica and I would say, oh, are you sure that's going to work? And they go, go ahead and try it. And lo and behold, a lot of times they're right. People can hear, musicians can hear what is possible, you know, on a, in a blues context. Right. And uh, so a lot of times I think that, that um, simplicity is the answer. Making the vocal really melodic and really thematic and then following it with a very simple harmonica line. I mean, that's the way... A lot of Howlin' Wolf's music, and you know, it's just this really urgent. There's an urgency to it, but there's real simplicity. So, when you you moved from New York to attend university in Indianapolis, correct? Yep. And this yeah, is I wanted for... to go to music school back in the day because I was kind of a self self taught, you know, singer, like I say, and I wanted to get a little, you know, theoretical background in music. I didn't have a lot of theory in high school. So I didn't really know um, how to communicate as a musician. But and you so, went as yeah. a vocalist. I did, I did, but you know when you're when you're in a university studying music, you get you know you get a few semesters on piano, and you get familiar with you know harmony, uh, etc. So you're you're much more able to communicate with musicians and I was you know I write my songs on piano that's the you know when I'm doing writing uh, of, of tunes I generally am operating on on a piano and then you know I can bring my ideas to to cats who really know how to play and then they really those those songs come to life I can't quite I, I have no you know piano chops like at that level but the piano is used as a tool so that was another thing that that I could learn from a university setting in terms of music. You know, I always say many um, musicians in the jazz world and in the blues world were had training, but a lot of times it came from the church. You mm -hmm. know, you hear any number of soul musicians, people that sang, you know, soul or, or in um, R&B, et cetera, et cetera. And when you dig down, they'll say, oh, I got my training from the church. I was a musician and I played piano in, in the church context or I sang in the choir. So this notion that 
there are all these self-taught, you know, blues or jazz musicians um, who would, you know, maybe look down their nose at university, you know, a university education or whatever in music, like what I got. I'm not saying that they people do look down on it, but it, it's to me, it's the parallel of what they, many blues musicians and jazz musicians went through learning in through the through church music through the through the gospel gospel music tradition you know right but i didn't i didn't have that you know but i did have this other thing you know but i wonder so by the time you decided i know you you thought this is what i wanted what you wanted to do when you were a young kid but what was the thinking going to university what did you think going to university for music would give you as a musician Oh, yeah. Oh, well, first of all, I grew up in a house where, you know, you were going to go to college. I mean, my, my, my family was very much, although I should, it's funny, my brother only went for one year and then he dropped out, but he became a <laughs> vice president at Time Warner, so I guess it didn't hurt him. But anyway, wow. um, yeah, he did. He, he didn't, he went right to work as a, as a reporter and then he worked his way up. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, I mean. Sorry, my, sorry to interrupt, but sorry yeah. to interrupt, but. Isn't your dad, wasn't he a writer as well? Yeah, yeah. My dad was a, a baseball writer and a magazine editor. So, um, you know, and he had gone to Columbia University and he had gone to school of journalism there and stuff. So, yeah, he was a pretty well-known uh, re- uh, biographer. Uh, he wrote a pretty much the definitive biography of Lou Gehrig. And he wrote a book on, uh, he's, he's wrote many, many books in, in wow. his day as a New York uh, kind of publishing world guy, you know. So you must be a sports fan then. Yeah, I yeah, I am. I am. I'm not like 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 him. It's kind of like, you know, I guess it's the same with many things growing up with someone in their shadow like that. It's like you're never yeah, going to yeah. be you're never going to be as knowledgeable about that, you know, as yeah, as he sure. was. Um but he was very analytical when he watched sports, you know. Okay, um, sorry to interrupt. Um, no, so no, no, no. I, I love talking about my dad too. Um, yeah, so my point was, you, you were, in my family, you were pretty much going to go. Like, I don't know, I guess, but just growing up, I thought I was going to go. My mother, my mother, you know, she went to Vassar, my dad went to Columbia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what did I think I was going to learn? Well, I mean, it dawned on me that um, I should get a college education and that music was my, my, my interest so I figured, I mean, I went and I got an education degree in music ed was kind of my fallback plan to, you know, if I can't be a performing musician, perhaps I could teach music. I never really got the chops together to be much of a classroom teacher, but okay. at least that was kind of like the plan. And, you know, <laughs> but... You had a plan. Well, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did. Uh, and But of course, you know, uh, always during that period, I was in bands. And then in Bloomington, Indiana, where Indiana University was, Bloomington became really one of those college towns that people talk about, kind of quintessential uh, college town. And, and as a New Yorker, you know, as a guy that grew up in Manhattan, of course, I didn't know Indiana from anything. But then you come to find that a small college town like that, or a medium size, I should say, has tons of cultural things going on. And one of the main things was it was a major stop 
along the blues highway, you know, in, mm. in the 70s and 80s when I was there. And so you didn't, you know, you could crawl out of bed and just right there you could hear so many of the great blues musicians who were still on tour back in those days. I mean, John Lee Hooker came through, Muddy Waters, Albert King, you know, uh, Gatemouth Brown, um, Luther Allison, on down the list, um, would, would come through the college towns during those kind of glory years of the, uh, the second wave of Chicago blues, you know. How much exposure would you have had to blues in New York City? I don't think I would. I don't think I would have had anywhere near the the same amount. I mean, my experience with blues in New York City was, as I've related, listening to the records. You know, I could find anything back then. You know, a, a city like New York, you could you could have great record stores. But I don't think I would have been exposed at the at the close up level that I had. Yeah, in in Indiana. Can you tell me what you might have gotten from that exposure to see John Lee Hooker or to see Gatemouth Brown? Do you remember any anything that you just took away from it? Well, just I think the overall the overall power and and the aura of you know that these were the people who were the Mount Rushmore figures of of blues and they had their trademark sound. Um, um, you know, from the moment they played guitar or sang, you, you know, that was, you were in the, the, um, the realm of, of someone who is a total pro. So, you know, it's just also just the mechanics of being a band leader. You know, you got up close and personal and you could see the way um, the pros did it, the way they ran their bands, things like that. Right. Um, I mean, by that time, I was in a little band, and we we ended up opening up for a lot of the, the 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 acts that came through. Because at that time, in Central Indiana, where I was located, there were there were only a handful, if that, of other blues bands. So we just kind of by uh, default got got the uh, go ahead to open all those shows. So we would open up the show for Muddy and John Lee Hooker, et cetera. So there was a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the idea of meeting your heroes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, to those guys, they, we were a dime a dozen. I mean, every night someone opened up for them, and many of them were, <laughs> were... I mean, we weren't very good at that point, but we just because we were doing it, there just weren't a lot of blues bands back, you know, around doing. Now there, it seems like there's hundreds or thousands of blues bands. I mean, you have things like the International Blues Challenge where you have, like, every state has 20, 30, 40, 50 blues bands, you know. Yeah. But back then, it just it was kind of a more innocent time. I think the people that were in it were, were oftentimes really lifers. Like, back then, I met many of the people that I met that were in the blues world then are still in it now, and that was 40 years ago. Right. Or, or 30 years, you know. So we were running into people like the T-Birds, and we were running into Anson Funderburg and the Rockets, and we were running into, um, you know, uh, Little Ed and the Blues Imperials. We were running into, you know, all these people that now, of course, I, many of them are just my friends, you know, Rick Estrin and, and, and Little Charlie and the Nightcats and people like that, and 
they've really there's a winnowing down where there's just like certain people in that have kept with the music for all those decades. Right. And, you know, I kind of got shoehorned in with those people through different relationships that I made that I had with, uh, you know, with all the, the people coming up during those years. I mean, a lot of my friends in the blues world were sidemen for that great wave of, blues personalities that were still around. So, um, you know, I heard Otis Rush back in the day, and who would have thought that Harlan Turson, his bass player, has been with me for, you know, 20 20 years we've been making records together. Wow. It's interesting how that works out, eh? Yeah, yeah, and like Lonnie Brooks's band, Ken Sadak was in Lonnie Brooks's band, and then Ken's recorded with me many times, and Dave Spector played with Behind Sun Seals, and he played in, you know, behind, you know, so many of the great Chicago players, but now he's a force in his own right. So there's that nurturing, that, that pecking order, that apprenticeship that we all served, and then you come out the other side of that, you know, you work for the uh the great leaders and then you come out the back end and at the end you you have your own brand and i've seen that happen with nick moss people like that you know who came yeah. through and they apprenticed in the music and then they became true artists you know in their own right so was it important for you to go to chicago move to chicago after school absolutely i mean one of the most important things that happened to me and it was was being blessed enough and maybe smart enough at one point to attach myself to a great woman and you know you you meet a lot of musicians and they mold you and they they you know they mentor you but there's no substitute for having a lifelong mate, you know, in my case, my wife, Amy, who for sure. was able to, you know, a lot of times that person knows you better than you know yourself. So they might say, this is a good decision for you. Or they might, you know, give you that look where, mm, really, you're going to do that, you know? <laughs> and, and so I've been really lucky because musicians really need to have someone, A, looking out for them, but B, to call their bluff, you know, to say, you know what, that you don't, that doesn't, that's not a good fit for you, or that's not a good look for you, or, you know, whatever it is. So that was a big decision we both made. We were in Indiana, and uh, she wanted to test the waters of the art scene up there because she was a graduate of uh, Heron uh, School of Art in Indianapolis. So she wanted to get involved with the arts in Chicago. And I, I was, you know, all, you know, it was almost her decision, but also then, I, then, it, then it became apparent that it would really help me because I then became part of the Chicago blues scene, you know, right. and all the opportunities there. And, you know, I forget, like, as the years go by that, you know, some of the dates that I had, I was working with, Dave Spector, Robert Covington, Bob Stroger on bass. We did a lot of club dates with that little trio, you mm-hmm. know, with me singing. So I'm with one of like the premier rhythm sections in Chicago blues. And I never, I mean, I always appreciated it, 
but it was just kind of like those were the guys that played there. I mean, yeah. I was in a band with Sam Lay for about a year or two. I remember yeah. picking up Sam. I would drive in. I, I lived a little west of him. And so I would drive in from Oak Park and pick up Sam, and we go to the gig in Chicago. And then at the late hour, I'd drop Sam off, or I would drop Bark and Bill Smith off, or they, or they would drive, whatever the case was. But, um, yeah, I was in a band called the Mojo Men that had uh, Sam and also Tail Dragger, the great blues singer. Right. He was in the band for a while, in the Mojo Men. Um, so, you know, Chicago was just a place where even on a bad night, you were going to be playing with good people, <laughs> you know? What's the greatest thing you learned from that experience? Um, I, I think one of the great things about the blues business is that to, you know, to a man or to a woman, I, I have I've met just some, some great people who are very... Um, interesting interested in in hearing new new people you know and it's not so much competitive it's um hey what can i learn from this other person i always you know think of the baskin robbins theory of of blues that the most people don't just want chocolate vanilla or strawberry they want to have you know 40 flavors or 50 flavors they like it all you know, right. and so many musicians get in the mindset that, you know, well, Charlie Parker is the last statement on, you know, jazz saxophone. I don't want to hear anybody else or, you know, you know, or, you know, there's this whole thing. Well, Kim Wilson is the best harmonica player, so no, nobody else need apply, <laughs> you know, but that that's not the way lay people or, or fans of the music listen to it. Right. They want to hear the, what, you know, what Kim Wilson does, but they want to hear what Rick Estrin does. They want to hear what Billy Branch does. They want to hear, you know, they want to hear it all because they're interested in the variety of the music. They don't look at it as a sporting event. Like who won? I get that. But I mean, you know, you're also known for R&B or soul singing. Was that ever like, was there ever a conflict well, that, you know, that's been kind of like my career-long um, uh, goal or pursuit um, to, uh, to somehow find a piece with those two, those two strains. And I find it, you know, and people like, I guess, artists like Syl Johnson, he's, he's really one that really strongly comes to mind. But there are uh, artists that are able to use the harmonic in such a way that it can be used in soul and R&B. And that's what, you know, um, what I've really worked at. And that, that's one of the things I've, I've often said to my side, man, you know, man, isn't it weird going from a big Walter shuffle and then doing an O.V. Wright tune? And I've been, uh, you know, they've convinced me that there's that the way we do it in my band is, is somehow it, it smooths that rough edge. It, it, you're able to go from from one to the other, and they they work together really well. Um, that's kind of the difference, you know, between my show and and some other shows. Uh, right. The way the way it's presented, I, I think John Namath is one of the best at that too. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's he's one he's he's a gem 
in that he can go seamlessly from like a Junior Wells funky blues right into a beautiful soul tune. And there's no, you know, it's not like he had to change clothes between, <laughs> you know, it's the same guy <laughs> delivering his, his brand, you know. Although that, he does wear a lot of clothes, doesn't he? Doesn't he <laughs> yeah, and, and, and cool glasses, yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, but I, uh, but I mean that, that, that that's what I've, uh, that's the holy grail for, for me because otherwise you're just another, you know, you're just another guy playing, you know, harmonica through a Fender basement and wearing a fedora and it, it kind of gets, I don't know, there's, what's the point of it? So at what point or another you decide to go, I don't know if it's really solo, but from going from playing in a band or playing with Dave Spector, you decide to release your own stuff. Was that a difficult transition? Um, I mean, that was, you know, I think that every every singer that's come up the pike wants to make their own record in the, in the way they want to make it. Or sometimes even more so, they want to be produced right. by a really good producer who can stand outside and say, you know what, you're really good at this, and then I'm going to put you in that context, and you're going to, you know, you're going to be amazed, you know. So yeah. I think that, yeah, I mean, uh, there's that um, you work your way up, uh, I, Dave was in Chicago um, back in those years making records with Delmark. He had made his debut album with uh, the great swinging blues jazz singer Barkin' Bill Smith. And uh, then he was going to make one with B.B. Uh, with Odom, but B.B., I, I can't remember the exact chronology, but I, what came to pass was Dave needed a singer to flesh out his second album because at that time Dave was not singing he always used different singers so he offered me that gig I mean Dave had been a side man with me I had met him when I was at Rose's Lounge I was holding down the uh, uh, on West Armory Street in uh, Chicago I was, I was the uh, house band at Rose's huh. for, the, for the pro jam we did that for a couple of years and so everybody would come through on, the, on an off night. We would do Mondays or Wednesday, I can't remember, but I think it was Mondays, so most cats were off. So everybody would come through, and that's where I met Dave. I used to tape some of the shows, and Dave came through one time, and I was playing back the tape, and I thought, man, who's that? Because, you know, it was an open mic, right. so you had to keep track of, you know, Larry, Larry Bell would come, and Steve Freund, and... Uh, uh, Melvin Taylor and all sorts of people would come through and they were it was a great great scene but I listened back and I had to rewind it and go man who was that and it was Dave he, he you know he was really laying it down and I thought that's a good sound so I think I'll try to keep track of that guy and uh, turned around a couple of years later uh, he turned to me and and asked me if I would sing on that record Bluplicity so we made a, a record together but no there was never any it, it, it was just a, it was a great experience, but it was a way station along the, along the path to making your own records. Everybody wants to make their own record, right. you know, and I was really appreciative of Dave, you know, opening that door for me because he brought me to Delmark uh, Records. He brought me to their attention. And uh, then I, you know, was able to make a couple records at Delmark on my own. I used Dave on uh, some of that. And, um, but then, you know, you're always trying to, trying to mold your own thing too. So, 
but I still work with Dave several times a year. We do festivals, and I don't think a year goes by that we don't uh, get together and do some kind of project, which is really, you know, that's that's what keeps the lights on and the, <laughs> the, yeah. the food on the table, you know, just doing different gigs with, with different people and never burning bridges um, because you don't, you never know when, you know, also other, other people might say, you know, I really like the way you played with Dave. Can you come and perform in Sweden with Dave on this big bill? You know, so it's like, yes, sir, you know. Yeah. Oh, so I was going to ask you about that, about touring in Europe, because we were in a Tartan together at one point. Yes, uh, yeah. But you've yeah. done a lot of stuff in, in Europe. How did that happen? Um, well, when uh, the first thing was with Dave. Dave brought me for my first time, and he brought me to Germany, and I think we did Belgium. We did the Banana Peel Club in, in, in Belgium, a famous blues joint. And uh, we did a bunch of dates in, uh, in Bremen, Germany, and uh, uh, several, we played East, I mean, we played uh, uh, Berlin, and yeah, we played all over that first trip. And you know, just like anything else with musicians, you do a gig somewhere, and the goal is that, a year down the line, they ask you. They ask you back. You know, right. you never really want to show up once at a gig. the The idea is to continually make make the uh, your orbit larger. You know, and so that you know that generally happens if you don't uh, if you don't mess up too bad. You know, <laughs> um, if you don't insult anybody, it's important. Uh, but yeah, so you know, for years since the '90s, I've been going. I've been playing. I've, I've counted it. I've had about 21 countries now. Um, Wow. That that I perform at semi regularly, you know, um, and that's uh, you know mostly Western Europe, but also Eastern Europe. I played you know Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, you know, uh, on and on, um, and of course you know Germany, Belgium, Holland, France, Italy, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so yeah, we you know uh, that's been going on. As long as you make records on a label that that kind of gets your name out, um, and that you're kind of part of the the scene, I think that's that's been a tradition among blues musicians and jazz musicians for for many decades. Actually, that the European audience is very key. It's very important, and of course, it it makes the world feel a lot smaller because you end up having relationships with. Nightclubs, festivals, fans, uh, musicians, and all these other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if one thing is slow, you know, I've always found, you know, when things are slow in one place, you know, you get on the phone, hey, man, can we, can we do a tour back in Finland again? Or can, can I come back to Germany? Or et cetera, et cetera. And people start calling you, and you, that's how your calendar gets, gets filled in, you know. Right. Um can I ask you what your goals might have been while you were living in Chicago as a musician? And, and then were you, do you think that you achieved that? You, you know, it was like I was fortunate in that I became obsessed with blues and, and, and that whole flavor of music. Right. And then I ended up going to Chicago while there were still some of the the legends and kind of the innovators, the, the guys and the gals that that were uh, the the architects of the sound. You know, the Lonnie Brooks, 
Sun Seals, Otis Rush, Jimmy Johnson, you know, um, and then over to people like Steve Freund, Ken Sadak, Dave Spector, and you know, on and on. And so I was lucky to, this was a music that I was really obsessed with, that I loved it, and then I got kind of my foot in the door, and I was making records, and um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that, that um, much of that I mean, sure, there's there's things I wished I'd done better. There are things, there were recordings that I've done that I kind of look at now and I think, ooh, you know, I, I really should have tweaked that or how come I don't, how come I didn't see that that was a bad line, you know, or I could have sang that better or whatever. But, you know, you, you give it your best and, and uh, yeah, I felt like that Chicago part of my career was, was really, uh, really important and it has, you know, and it sent me on my way to becoming, you know, established enough that that you know I, I got to do some pretty big festivals like the one you were talking about, Notodden and the Lucerne Blues Festival. And Notodden, of course, is in Norway, yeah. Lucerne in Switzerland, and Basel, uh, Groove now, which is one of the the crown jewels of the European scene. I've done that, and um, yeah, you know, festivals pretty much all over all over Europe. So yeah, and that was that's all due to the, the years of being in the trenches and kind of paying my dues, so to speak, not to not to use a cliche, but that's what that's about. You know, I think back on all of the gigs. Um, and that's yeah, that's what that's all about. So one of the neat things you did last year, I believe, I, I don't know when it was recorded, was an album called Real Street. Yeah. Worked with yeah. the high rhythm section. Tell me about that, because that must have been quite an experience for you well yeah that's you know still a kind of uh you know i still kind of pinch myself about that one i i got a i received a a grant from the um arts council of indianapolis and the grant proposal that i made this was back in 17 the grant period was 17 through 19 2017 okay. through 2019, uh, 2019 and the grant proposal was originally i wanted to be a fly on the wall i wanted to use the grant money to to go to memphis for an extended period of time and just listen to what was happening in the state of memphis soul and who were the the earlier architects of the music that were still at it and how the music had evolved. It was kind of that kind of idea, but I, it was a trip to Memphis, to the source of soul music, you know. And I, got, I ended up getting the grant, and then I was in touch with friends like John Namath and, and Curtis Salgado and uh, Dave Keller and some others, and when they heard, I told them about the grant, and they said, man, while you're there, you should do more than just be a fly on the wall you should take this opportunity to record a few tracks. And John Namath said, I can, you know, get you with the the high rhythm section, Howard Grimes on drums, Le Leroy Hodges on bass, and Charles, uh, Charles Hodges on Hammond. And these were the guys that played on all of the seminal Al Green records, the Syl Johnson records, many of the O.V. Wright records. Um, this was the high rhythm section that had, right. you know, been produced by Willie, the great Willie Mitchell. We're talking love and happiness. Let's stay together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, you know, I can't stand the rain, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, so I brought that to the attention of, um, so I, I planned to do, to cut a few tracks. I was going to 
take a little of that grant and do like three tracks, you know. And I told Dave what kind of what songs would you have done? Your own songs? Um, Yeah, I was thinking of presenting some of mine and maybe some some of uh, you know some covers. I hadn't really thought about that, but I you know I thought, hey, this would be a great opportunity. But I mentioned it to David Earl at Severn Records, and Severn has been the really the most kind of uh, uplifting things that to come along for me in my career because David Earl, the, the owner of Severn Records, heard something in me and, and decided to take me on. He gave me a, a great you know, four-record deal. We made a bunch of records, and uh, they've really kind of put me into a better career place. And that's all thanks to his, you know, He's a great engineer. He's a great producer. He has great ideas. Anyway, I've been very lucky to work at Severn Records with David Earl. So can when, I ask you, what, yeah. what did he hear? How, I, how did... I, well, he, well, Alex Schultz brought me to his attention. The, oh, the okay. guitar player, Alex Schultz, who I've worked with for decades, who I grew up with back in, as a teenager in New York City. He was playing guitar. And then we kind of ended up jamming together and we said, hey man, if anything ever happens, call me, you know, and I said, you know, and so he ended up playing, you know, being, uh, doing all sorts of work in the blues, in the blues music field, big, big high profile, you know, assignments yeah. with Rod. Yeah, a guitar player. Yeah, William Clark, he became kind of a guitar player's guitar player. He's, he's one of those people that is pointed to as He's, he's so fine, you know, as a guitar mm-hmm. player that sometimes people don't even get it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but the guitar players do, you know. Um, but, but anyway, he had turned me on to David Earl. He said, man, this guy might be interested in, in signing you. And he really pushed for it. And there was a woman at the label named Joan Matthews. And she also said, David, you got to listen to this guy. So anyway, he gave me a chance and he, he heard some previous stuff I had done. And he heard a record that, that I had recorded with Alex Schultz that ended right. up being Did You Ever Wonder? And David David took that album. We, we, we added Willie Henderson's great horn production to the tracks we had, and we had a record. And then I got my first two Blues Music Award nominations out of that record. So right. the, the lineage was Joan Matthews and Alex Schultz helping me to meet David Earl, and then David Earl made it happen for me. So... When David Earl heard that I was going to go to Memphis to have the experience of maybe working with these legends, he said, man, why do three or four tracks? I'll match the grant. He said, Severn, you know, we'll match the grant and you should do a whole record, do wow. a full, do a full record. And, you know, and I said, I went back to the, the Arts Council of Indianapolis and I said, look, you gave me a grant to go and experience Memphis and, you know, eat barbecue and listen to cool soul at some out of the way juke joints you know but now would you change can i change the focus of the grant to making a record and they they gave me their blessing so that's how real street came about the most recent record uh that i have out there and real street features on uh in the band uh reverend charles hodges on hammond organ and uh leroy hodges on bass and howard grimes on drums and then uh Teeny Hodges was always a great part. He was the guitar player in the high rhythm section. But Teeny uh, is deceased, and he had passed away. And I kind of asked the people who knew, you know, who's a guy that could do a great job. Um, and everybody turned to a guy named Joe Restivo. And so Joe's the guitar player. And then I brought Kevin Anker, the great 
keyboard player that I've worked with for 20 years, one of the one of the really key exceptional guys in uh, piano and Hammond organ in the scene right now. He's he's a full time member now of the uh, fabulous Thunderbirds as well. Right. But Kevin's worked with me for years, and uh, I brought him along, and he played Wurlitzer and kind of helped me band lead the the affair in the studio. We went to Electrophonic Studios on South Main Street in Memphis uh, with Scott Bomar Engineering. Um, and uh, we came out with Real Street. And then we added, uh, we added the horns. Um, the, later that week, we, we, we did all the tracks, mostly live, and then we added horns. And we added a great singer, Devin Thompson, who did all the vocal background arrangements. And we cut those later at Severn. But anyway, we, that's that's how that came about, and you know, again, tell another, me what that experience meant to you. Everything, uh, in a nutshell, you know. It, you, it's, but, but was it intimidating? Well, the only thing that was intimidating about it, 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 there was no intimidation from the way they approached it, because when I met the guys, they couldn't have been more welcoming and more affirming and more uplifting and more team players, you know, I mean, right. so there was nothing there. What was intimidating was, you know, in the weeks before I realized, you know, this could be the biggest joke on me because <laughs> here I am telling people, oh, I'm going to go make this record with the high rhythm section, but maybe the record's going to suck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it could be that I don't bring the goods. Because really, ultimately, you can have, you know, you can have great players. I knew they would sound good. Right. But ultimately, you're thinking, wow, man, the, it's really on me to take this opportunity that has been given to me and come away with something that I don't cringe about. Right. And that, that was the intimidation. It was my own, you know, psyche saying, man, it's not, it's, it's, it's not good enough just like, to say, hey, I did this thing with these great people. For but sure. you kind of have, you want to walk away with a document, at least a few tracks, you know, that you can point to and say, that's what my vision was, that's what I wanted to accomplish, and that's what I'm, you know, you know, something that is really special, that was captured. Was there a moment? You know, sorry, was there a moment yeah. in the studio that that you thought, oh yeah, this is working out pretty good? Um, well, we started with a tune that I thought would work well, you know, just kind of a, a medium tempo tune that I had written most of anyway. It was called Love in the Neighborhood. And it was kind of that that groove that I thought we would all, you know, we couldn't go wrong on. So, you know, part of that is is the way you plan a session. You never want to start with the one that the hardest tune, you know. Right. So in that respect, it, it kind of unfolded really nicely that, we got sounds, and Scott Bomar did his tricks of getting everything balanced and ready, and, and then we went into that first song, and I kind of knew right then that, you know, that I was home, you know, that I was, that I, that I found myself in a really comfortable place where um, I was uh, in my, uh, in my element, so to speak, vocally. That must have been a great feeling. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, we, we could only do three songs a day. We had three, we had three days. We did three, three, and then we did four. You know, we needed ten songs. Right. So, you know, we did those, those first three, and I felt really good, you know, immediately. So I, I knew that we were okay. 
Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but um, I know we're going through. I'm going to ask you one last question. Sure. I know we're going through a weird time with the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder, like, it's hard for you to predict the future, but tell me what you've learned from this whole the experience of the pandemic about yourself. Hmm. I don't know how to approach that one. I think I think I'll go back and say that you know what I was saying before about finding a really good life partner, a good you know the, the fact that I'm in the marriage that I'm in with my wife Amy. That this is a time where we, we've been you know we've been able to you know every person goes through the angst, but you never know when the other person's going through it. You know, so it's kind of like I could be feeling pretty hopeful for a moment, and then I realize that. You know, she's that she's not that she's in the in the depths of, you know, despair about it. And then the coin can flip and and I can be really, you know, angsty about it. And yet some her day is different. So you kind of again, it's that balancing and, and finding a person to make it through this with. I think is I'm, I'm lucky in that we have that together. Yeah. That, you know, we're, we're able to. Because, you know, you're, it's 24-7 us. <laughs> you know? Yes, it is. And that's, you know, that is, um, you know, we have, we have to find our own, our own space, but yet we have to make it through this thing together and kind of figure out what's important to us and, and uh, you know, try to hold on to our dreams during this period. Mm. But I don't know what I'm, you know... It might be too early to know what I've learned from it because we're still in the thick of it. But um, um, I guess counting counting our blessings, you know, yeah. that you know things that we have done, you know, that uh, a lot of great memories. Well said. Thank you so much for doing this, uh, Marco. I've, great, great to talk with you. I've we've, I've been wanting to do it since No Totten, and I, you know, I'm glad that you came back to me and fitted fit huh. me into the to the schedule. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good talking with you, man. 